Affairs, Criminal Behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. Happy to be your host for Criminal Behaviorology. This is Timothy Joseph. And I have some recordings from a webinar earlier this year. And it covered uh, novel applications of applied behavior analysis. Uh, it had three guests on there. Uh, Joseph Cotilli, uh, we had covered in just the previous podcast, he had a great discussion about uh, mental health uh, television and dissemination. Uh, he was part of the webinar. Unfortunately, the recording was not perfect. And so we I covered his in, in an individual interview. We had two other guests that I think were also just as good, and uh, they added a lot of material and a lot of thought to the field. They were uh, Kent Corso and Vanessa uh, Bethia Miller. Both of them, uh, Kent is a, a, a psychologist, BCBAD. Um, Vanessa was very instrumental in helping make the webinar happen, and she's uh, a BCBA herself. Kent covered uh, the... Uh, applications of ABA to suicide, health, and the military, while Vanessa covered the very important field of juvenile justice. It was a big success, a few technical problems like I always have. That's all right. The three uh, speakers were able to be heard. It was just uh, my recordings. So I'm going to go ahead and, and present these recordings, and I plan to have uh, links available where you can download their PowerPoints. We may have a chance to do another one of these, perhaps in November of 2020, possibly a new set of guests and a new set of topics. I'm, I'm trying to make behavior analysis useful to so many different areas. My bias is in uh, uh, criminology, criminal justice, but there's many areas that we can cover and, and provide information on. I thought they had some real good talks. Listen carefully. If you have any questions, comments, requests for transcripts, all that kind of stuff, you can go on the Facebook page. You can email criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com. One word, criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com. And go ahead and let us know what you think of the podcast. Go ahead and rate us on any of the podcast sites. And let us know what you think. I'm going to say a little bit about Kent's a licensed clinical psychologist and a board-certified behavior analysis. His career in suicidology and primary care uh, behavioral health began almost two decades ago while serving in the U.S. Air Force as an officer. His research developed programs and trained others to implement evidence-based programs nationally and internationally. 
He has published numerous peer-reviewed research papers and is a leading expert in the novel scientific methods and digital technologies for analyzing variables and patterns associated with suicide. Kent, are you ready to go? I'm ready. Tim, can you hear me okay? I think we can hear you just fine. I'm going to go ahead and they'll stop hearing me and they'll hear you. Great. Thanks so much for the intro, Tim. So what I'm going to talk about is reaching farther with ABA in the areas of suicide, health, and military applications. I'll give you all a warning. I have way too many slides, but that is intentional because that way, uh, if there's any problems with bandwidth or feed, you can always look at the, the slides later. And at the end, I'll include my email address, and I strongly encourage you to keep in touch. Uh, don't hesitate to reach out if you have questions or concerns or if uh, you need references or something. So without further ado, here are my objectives. I'm not going to go through them exhaustively. Uh, you'll get the CDs, as, as we saw in the chat room. It'll, Vanessa will take care of us. Thanks again for uh, Vanessa and Tim for putting this together. Really appreciate it. It's exciting to be here. Here's our overview, why broadening our reach is critical and why it's an ethical issue. Barriers to broadening our reach, uh, health, military, suicide applications, and then solutions for how you can be a part of broadening ABA's reach. So um, why did I say ethics? How is broadening the reach of ABA really an ethics issue? Um, well, if we look at 6.01, it says that we are supposed to advance, that's an action verb, advance the values, ethics, and principles of the profession, and another action verb here, participate in behavior analytic, professional, and scientific organizations and activities. So I think the, the ethical mandate there is to be active in uh, uh, participating in advancing the ethics values and principles. And then 6.02 is dissemination. So our, part of our job is to promote our science by making information about it available to the public. Certainly if you uh, enjoyed Joe's talk and you want to take any steps in uh, the direction that he suggested, you would certainly be abiding by both of these principles. Um, and then if you do look in the glossary uh, about what, how do we define or operationalize behavior analytic services, there are things that uh, have social importance. Uh, Joe mentioned a few different types of social importance uh, with, with, uh, within his presentation. And uh, between military, suicide, and health, my hope is to address socially important uh, things as well. So, this is the audience participation part. Go ahead and type in the chat box uh, yes or no. How many of you currently work or do uh, did work in TRICARE's ECHO program? We'll give you about 113 seconds to vote. And according to Tim, we have about 200 people here. And I've counted about three or four yeses. Okay, oh, there's another yes. Go ahead and take four more seconds. Okay, so so uh, if there are 200 people here and we had about five, that's like a two and a half percent, right? So uh, it looks like many of you may actually uh, be working outside of that field anyway. Why do I mention that? Well, in 2007, that's the first time in American history that the DOD, that's the Department of Defense, published a policy authorizing reimbursement for BCBAs. This is known as the Extended uh, Care Health Option. 
Uh, in 2008, there were a little over 10,000 ECHO enrollees, and in 2019, 11 years later, it had more than doubled uh, to 21,000. Uh, the total beneficiaries of the military medical system or health system are about 9.5 million. So this means ABA is currently touching about 0.2% of the military population. Uh, and most importantly, that's only for ASD. Uh, when I was a civilian employee working at Walter Reed uh, National Medical Center, I had a patient who is about a 28-year-old uh, African-American female with mild intellectual disabilities, multiple medical problems, um, obesity, diabetes, severe respiratory problems. She carried an oxygen tank around with her. Uh, very unfortunate case, many medical uh, comorbidities. And she had, um, she had been referred to me, I was working as a behavioral health provider in primary care, and she had been referred to me for depression. And as it turned out, there was a lot more going on, obviously, other than depression. And her depression was actually mild. But what I learned in trying to schedule a follow-up appointment with her is that she had something like 60 to 70 medical appointments a year in that hospital, which is more than one a week. Um, and so I went to the department head and then went even higher to the person who's in charge of the whole uh, Department of Medicine and said, hey, if we could make an exception and provide this person ADA services, we would probably get her to be adherent to all her treatment regimens within a few months, and you would probably save about $200,000 a year in wasted health care because what you're delivering is not appropriate for this patient. Unfortunately, um, they didn't think that it fit within the TRICARE ECHO program. Of course, it doesn't. Uh, TRICARE ECHO program does not uh, apply to this person, so they would not provide ABA, would not allow me to provide So while it's wonderful that the TRICARE ECHO program has doubled in the last uh, 10 years, 12 years, and while it's wonderful that we are doing so much for uh, the ASD population within the military medical system, the bummer is that it only touches about 0.2% uh, of the people who could benefit. Now, let's look at demand signals. Uh, when we say demand signals, we're, of course, talking about supply and demand. <clears throat> and so a recent report indicated that the top four skills employers sought when hiring behavior analysts are experience with autism, psychology, treatment planning, and experience working with developmental disabilities. In 2014, private health insurance paid for about 42% of all ADA services, followed by TRICARE at 21% and then Medicare and Medicaid, CMS paying about 22.5%. 60 percent of all job postings in 2014 for uh, ABA were in autism spectrum, intellectual and developmental disabilities, and education, which comprised 24 percent. So what we're saying here is that although one in 54 children have autism in America, and there are over 73 million children in the U.S., uh, which means 1.35 million with ASD, and there are over 7 million Americans in the U.S. with intellectual disabilities, 84% of the jobs are within autism and ID or DD context. So as a rough estimation, even if uh, all of us were treating these things, that would still only reach 2.5% of the U.S. population. So um, our field is huge. If anyone's gone to ABAI, you've experienced the, the wonder and madness of the annual conference. It's a wonderful conference. But, of course, uh, you know, there are hundreds
hundreds of people there, over 30 to 50 countries each year. It's incredible, and yet we're still only reaching 2.5% of the U.S. population. And maybe if we all had a television program, as Joe suggested, we might get out there uh, disseminated even better. Um, just teasing, Joe. Um, but, uh, but there is some validity to that. I've seen YouTube videos from uh, BCBAs or uh, ABAs in training, doing a certain procedure or, or instructing something. So certainly the use of social media is important. But how else can we get out there and reach more than just 2.5% of the population? Just for fun, what does 2.5% look like? Well, it, it, it looks about like this blue sliver, which, uh, you know, just to gain some perspective here, or it looks like approximately the population, which is this green uh, slice of the pie. Uh, this is, the, of course, population by state of the U.S. So, I mean, I, I show these to try to put it into perspective because we feel like we're busy. Our field feels huge, and yet we are really just this percentage of a larger whole. So, how do we respond to these demand signals? Um, well, um, we have to look at what other demand signals exist. If we want to broaden our reach beyond these two fields, we need to figure out what is a demand signal. So, let's go to the ABAI SIG list. Here are all the SIGs in ABAI, and there are actually only a handful of them that are uh, related to DD, ID, and ASD. Uh, so on one hand, we could say, okay, well, this is a demand signal. We appear to have colleagues who are very interested in things that broaden the reach of, of our field. Okay, great. Um, well, uh, but w what else do we know? Well, we know there are many, many barriers to getting involved. For example, we as a field tend to reject mentalism, uh, which means we don't have conversations with people in an academic or meaningful way. Uh, well, we, we may, but, but they end very quickly because we reject what they're saying. Um, or maybe we adhere rigidly uh, to our language and lexicon and jargon, and we insulate ourselves from others, which, of course, in the current healthcare and education climate where it's increasingly integrated and multidisciplinary, that can become a real barrier for, uh, for people to hear our message and appreciate our message. Uh, not only is it that we tend to talk in non-mentalistic terms, but we, we, and I'll say this, maybe you have a friend who you know, I'm sure none of you on this call would do this, but, but uh, we maybe talk in a little bit of a superior way or, or an esoteric way, a way that may not engender comfort in uh, people who generally ascribe to mentalism. Another problem is that we talk to ourselves. What, what journals do we publish in? Are we publishing in JAMA? Are we publishing in New England Journal of Medicine? Or are we publishing in uh, you know, the ABA journals? Uh, what about training programs in academia? Since the 80s, the majority of ABA programs uh, are funded by autism research just because it's such a problem. And so um, if that's where the funding is, that's the faculty's expertise because they're the ones running those research grants in those departments, and therefore what are all the practica experiences in? They're in autism uh, and DD and, and ID. I'm, I'm the co-chair of the Military and Veteran Special Interest Group for ABAI, and my co-chair is Abigail Calkin. I get uh, probably one email a week or every one to two weeks asking, hey, I'm in the pipeline, I'm in my first year or second year, I'm in my third class, what have you. How can I do uh, work in this field outside of autism? And, of course, the answer is, uh, 
there yeah. really aren't pipelines. Um, of course, there's a lack of funding, too, uh, for similar reasons. And then there are knowledge gaps, right? Where else, where else in society would the science of behavior be beneficial? We, as behavior, uh, behavior analysts, can talk about all sorts of applications. I continue to get emails for the sociocultural behavioral, uh, behavioral analysis conference, and um, you're also probably getting lots of different uh, emails from within the field, but what about outside the field? I mean, if we're talking to ourselves, we're just going to be sort of singing the same song and going nowhere. So do stakeholders in other industries have any sense that behavioral solutions are a significant part of their solution set? Uh, has anyone gone to the Cambridge Center uh, for Behavioral Studies website? If you haven't, I strongly encourage you to do that. They have a whole drop-down list of things called help centers, and they have an entire help center that Tim Ludwig has stood up on behavioral safety. Tim Ludwig is a uh, uh, Appalachian State University faculty. Uh, not sure if he's a psychologist, but I know he's uh, ABA. <clears throat> and he has a, a whole uh, program for industries out there, nationally and internationally, to help look at within their factories and warehouses and, and offices, do they have um, safe programs and, and safe safety procedures? And then they accredit all of those businesses. So many of these industries, uh, every hospital I've ever worked in has a safety department, safety officer, which is essentially behaviorism, but they're not from our field. Those are jobs we should be seeking. They just don't know that we're the best hires for them. Uh, and lastly, we have federal regulations. So I want to talk about this for a minute. If you haven't heard anything the whole time, maybe tune in uh, to this part. Um, 32 CFR 199.2. Uh, just to address the Cambridge question, it's behavior.org. It's the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies. 32 CFR 199.2 in federal code, federal law, says that the definition for reliable evidence of any kind of medical care is as follows. There must be well-controlled studies of clinically meaningful endpoints published in a refereed, which means peer-reviewed, medical journal, published uh, formal technology assessments, published reports of the National Professional Medical Association. Hopefully you're noticing the common thread. It's a word that starts with M-E-D. Uh, published national medical policy organization positions and published reports of national expert opinion organizations. Uh, I am uh, fairly certain that ABAI, ABPA, that they could fit into any of these categories. The problem is no one has looked at our literature and gone back to the 60s and pulled together the enough studies on, let's say, behavioral activation, as Joe talked about. Behavioral activation is more effective than SSRIs. So Zoloft, Prozac, Paxil, Lexapro, Celexa. Behavioral activation alone, I'm not talking about CBT, in randomized controlled trials is equally as effective to those medications. What makes them better is there's a lower relapse rate because people don't have to come off the meds. They get into those behavioral habits and they maintain them. But yet no one has strung that data together for the government, sent it to the government and said, actually, if, if we want to be literal, we can, as behavior analysts, meet your standard for depression. So please put us on your books so we can officially reimburse you and reach your population. Especially considering that both DOD medical system and the VA have a shortage of mental health providers, and they have for over a decade. 
uh, make that two decades, uh, well, let's call it 19 years since 9-11 happened. Um, and remember that everything, I mean, unless you're a dead guy, everything is behavior. So what does the whole world benefit from our science? Of course, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but, but uh, behavior is everywhere. It's what we're happening when, what's happening when we're busy living our lives. So how do we create a pipeline for the behavioral sciences? Um, what do we have to do to get this bubble to expand and to sort of push the limits of our reach? Um, so literature is, is one way to do it. If, if uh, we have John Borgen at Mississippi State University who's currently working with our state to do this, um, until we put together some paper to, to justify that we meet the criteria listed. In 32 CFR, we're never going to see the VA or DOD or any other federal agency hiring behavior analysts because OPM, which is the Organization for Personal Management, is the federal government entity. Uh, I, I can't remember if it's Department of Labor or not, but it's a federal government entity that determines who does the government hire. We hire accountants, we hire comptrollers, we hire uh, administrators, we hire psychologists, we hire psychiatrists, we hire social workers, we hire cardiologists, depending on, on the need. But there's no slot or billet for behavior analysts, and there won't be until we can put together some papers, both for the healthcare literature, but also for things like behavioral safety. I'm sure if we talk to Tim he could, uh, or his colleagues, they've got some very, uh, uh, accessible white papers or bullets they can put together. Um, but in a fee-for-service healthcare environment, in these big medical systems, uh, federal systems, healthcare in general, remember that even Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield won't reimburse us unless the diagnosis is ASD or in some cases IDDD. So, again, just another shout out. Thank you, John Borgen. You are a lifesaver. Um, uh, and then also I encourage you to work with your elected officials. Who do you know that is connected? Who's in ABPA? Who's in ABAI? How about the state ABA chapters? Who are leaders in the field who can help rally the team to put some papers together and get these to the right people in our government? I'm going to leave that hanging. Uh, so aside from reviewing our literature and disseminating it, which remember goes back to that ethical responsibility we have for disseminating our science, we can seek further training, work, or mentoring in these areas. So I'm going to talk briefly about PTSD, suicide prevention, uh, infographics and social activism, COVID-19, and then a few other applications, which I might as well mention now. Uh, standard acceleration chart, which most people find very scary. Looking at you, that's right. Most people find it very scary. I did when I came through. Um, there, there are physicians using it to train medical school students. Uh, there are people looking at it in terms of increasing uh, physical activity levels among college students who otherwise live a fairly sedentary life. Um, and then there are some other folks who are looking at it to train kids and adolescents in basketball skills. Um, we in the field know that these applications are out there, but where's the pipeline and where's the mainstream uh, acknowledgement or, or visibility? So let's talk about PTSD for a minute. Prolonged imaginal exposure is one of the the two efficacious treatments for combat-related PTSD, not coincidentally, also one of the two evidence uh, efficacious treatments for uh, sexual assault-related PTSD. Um, 
uses natural exposure and auditory exposure to those recorded sessions. So uh, if we can if we can say that PTSD um, is a phobia of memories, this protocol exposes someone to their memories of that event that is so feared. Uh, and uh, it, it uses all sorts of behavioral interventions, breathing retraining, imaginal exposure, and some of that in virtual reality technology, so wearing goggles and having a, ah. like a battle scene. Or a, um, was there a question? I heard someone pipe in. Was there a question? Ah. Okay, maybe a stray mic. Yeah. Um, some of that in virtual reality where you put on goggles and maybe you're... Uh, I don't Go ahead. Go ahead, ma'am. What do you want to say? Okay. Gonna, gonna, not sure if someone has a question. Going to move on. Um, so the virtual reality would show a, a, an image of, of maybe an attacker coming to assault you, or obviously in a combat setting, it would be a combat scene. Um, so those don't show any appreciable gains in treatment, but it's kind of cool to have, right? Um, but here are all the references, so they've been shown to be very effective. EMDR, just to answer that, Robin, EMDR is considered probably efficacious if you're familiar with the Chambliss and Holland criteria. It means uh, there is um, enough data there uh, that it is probably efficacious, but it hasn't been shown to be efficacious. Um, want to look at the other, I'm going to leave that other question for Tim, that's a good one. Um, so if you're interested in getting this treatment, www.deploymentpsychology.org. Uh, this is a government-funded nonprofit that provides treatment in imaginal exposure to the public. Now, because of COVID, these trainings have, have really wound down a bit, but this is congressionally funded uh, training, so it's not going to stop. Um, and, and once we open back up, obviously it'll be available. They do community trainings. Typically, it's advertised to mental health providers, so again, get on this site and take a look. Um, just looking at my time, it looks like I've got about 15, 20 minutes left, so I think I'm doing okay, and Tim will give me the hook if I run over. Um, let's talk about suicide prevention. There's a program called Defender's Edge. We did this with Air Force Security Forces, which basically means Air Force cops. Um, they, this was pre-deployment training, and then when they came back from deployment, they got the training again. Five educational modules that are all behavioral in nature. So fatigue countermeasures, which included stimulus control for sleep, and how to dose themselves effectively with caffeine without overdosing or underdosing. Uh, adrenaline management, so this was, of course, mindfulness and relaxation skills to manage autonomic arousal. Mission focus, this has to do with goal setting, clarifying their values, things related to acceptance and therapy. Um, and then uh, killing, which is based on a lot of uh, uh, the book on combat, on killing. Uh, this is gross work. And this is really to prevent trauma, help them start to look at cognitive restructuring, and again, acceptance type stuff that, that's related to acceptance and therapy. Um, just a quick PSA. I'm hearing quite a bit of feedback, both voices and breathing. So if you could do me a favor, just check your mic, make sure it's off um, or, or muted. That'd be appreciated. Um, and then the last one is mind tactics. So this is sort of like preparing yourself mentally what to expect. We all know as professionals that if we expect A and we get B, we tend to have problems adjusting. But if we expect A and we receive A, then we're happy, right? Think about the last time you went to a drive-thru or a restaurant, or maybe a concert, 
before COVID, right? If you thought that, um, you know, the opening band was going to be uh, Taylor Swift and instead you got Marilyn Manson, you might be kind of ticked off, right? But if you knew it was uh, Taylor Swift and you got Taylor Swift, you're a happy camper, right? So, so, um, so mind taxes has to be it has to do with how we prepare ourselves before, not just a routine activity or, or mission, but something that could be quite stressful. Um, not going to go through all the results. The most important one I'd like to highlight is that suicides decreased among 40 uh, by 40 percent among the military police officers. Uh, that's huge. That, that's that's uh, the only more effective suicide prevention strategy we've seen work is if we restrict access to firearms or we get people to use trigger locks or uh, gun safes, gun locks, we do see suicides decrease by 50%. Um, and we're currently replicating these studies in a three-year study at Whiteman Air Force Base, which has the worst suicide uh, rate in the country. Um, we're, we're in coordination with the University of Utah and Ohio State University replicating the, those. So how is that relevant for behavior analysts? Well, let's be honest. Exposure is is very much an ABA principle and process. Reading skills is very much uh, ABA. It's, it's controlling someone's autonomic arousal. Stimulus control for sleep, that's a no-brainer. ACT, obviously ABA. Um, and then, you know, we talked about the novel application of and acceleration charts. Bottom line, these are broader ways that we can reach out. I think you might still be wondering, how do we get there? I want to talk about one other suicide study in the Air National Guard. Uh, audience participation part. I see you guys chatting in the box, which is awesome. I'm uh, not able to keep up with you because the brain only does one thing in, at an instant. Um, but let me ask you this. Uh, would you say that if you had to guess, so this is a yes or no question, the military, uh, you should know, has had suicide prevention programs since 1986. So what do you think that, um, how many studies do you think they've done to evaluate the effectiveness of their suicide prevention briefings? Every, every military member has to get a briefing at least once a year about suicide. So how many studies do you think have been done on whether or not those briefings are effective? Maybe you can hear by the tone of my voice that it is low. Most of you are saying low. I think the highest thing I saw was five. Um, in 2016 to 17, we did the first study to examine if these briefings actually make a difference. Um, you should know that in 2017, there was a meta-analysis looking at the last 50 years of suicide research and another study in 2019, and they both concluded that our ability to predict future suicides is zero. In other words, we really don't have our hands around this phenomenon at all. I mean, do you think that our ability to manage COVID pandemic is bad? It's, it's just as bad with suicide. Um, we are not anywhere near we should be the way we are with things like influenza, whooping cough, measles, mumps, rubella. Um, so the, my question is, why isn't our science being leveraged, right? Uh, for the last 70 years, we have evidence-based tools and methods for measuring and changing behavior. The single case research design is especially helpful for low base rate phenomenon like suicides. But instead, because 98% of the behavioral scientists out there are, are trained in multivariate statistical uh, methods, that's the science they use to try to analyze suicide. And it's not appropriate. It's a misapplication of the science. 
So let's look at what we found when we, we, we did a one-year project for the Air National Guard to sort of do a program outcome evaluation, see how their uh, suicide program was working. We did use the chart. Um, we found that uh, before their suicide prevention program, suicides were accelerating at a times 3.1. After they put their program in, in place, it started decelerating by divided by 1.2. Uh, that's really great to see. Some interesting things we found is that bases, uh, wings, excuse me, where there were higher disciplinary actions, we actually saw lower suicide acceleration. Um, so why do you think, go ahead and type, type your answer in the chat box. Why do you think at a base or at a unit where there are higher disciplinary actions, there'd be lower suicides? The audience participation part again. Oh, I can take a drink. More antecedent manipulations, more attention, structure, check-in, outside of consequences. Good. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, guys. The, the reality is you had better leaders. You had people holding people accountable. When the people are holding people accountable and they're paying attention, they're paying attention to all the signs and the antecedents that might suggest that someone's struggling. So good work with that. Uh, does anyone know what EEO or MEO complaints are, equal opportunity? This is sort of like someone saying, uh, I'm filing a complaint that I was discriminated against because of my age, my race, my gender, my sexual orientation, um, uh, my rank, they could, they could uh, say that. Um, we saw the same thing we saw with disciplinary action, which is that at bases that had higher complaints of um, poor treatment or unfair treatment, there were lower suicides. So Ryan Dixon learned helplessness. Uh, can you elaborate on that while I keep talking? Elaborate on that uh, either by uh, unmuting your mic or chatting in the chat box. Go ahead. Yeah, their complaints aren't being addressed. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, and, and I think what, what would be helpful is also to look at the converse of that or the inverse of that, which is that at bases where people were addressing someone's complaints, people would raise a flag because they knew that if, if if I raise a flag, someone's actually going to respond and help me, right? And so the common denominator between both of these, uh, any of the bases that were on both lists, the common denominator was good leadership and proactive management. And so um, that's really helpful for us as, as behavior analysts to be able to tell a commander of, of 600 people um, that because of your strong leadership, you have lower suicides, keep doing what you're doing, keep being vigilant and with discipline and MEO complaints. That's important. Moving on to infographs and social activism. Um, this is a dynamite interface. Uh, you can see the URL up here. Dynamite, yes, Robin, it does seem so simple. If we could only do it everywhere, we'd be there. Um, <clears throat> uh, Lou, good point about the placebo effect. Let's, let's address that in the questions. That's a good one. Uh, we can probably unpack that. Uh, Chicagodata.org slash crime slash monthly dot PHP. This is the work of Patrick Marcotte, um, who put up this over 10, actually over 15 years ago. And what he did was he found an open source uh, data portal to pull the crime data in all the neighborhoods of Chicago. And then he uh, pushed this out to policymakers, legislators, and community members to say, hey, Every day, take a look at what's going on in your neighborhood. Look at the burglary, look at the arson. And when the people had these powerful data, they were able to uh, make better uh, connections with their leaders and together put forth better policies. Tim, thanks for the note. I've got five minutes left. Um, 
more more health applications. Here's what the acceleration of healthcare expenditures are in America. Pretty scary. Um, uh, if we look at uh, the uh, 2006, we see the acceleration slow. Um, we don't have time to talk about what happened in healthcare in 2006. Um, here's an API that we actually developed to uh, in January when COVID broke out. Uh, to help people look, uh, you can search by state and county to see the deaths and the cases confirmed in your community. Um, you should know that we have to show people the value we add. Um, there are other COVID tools that use semi-logarithmic uh, scales, not necessarily the standard acceleration chart, but similar ideas uh, where they show all the states at once and you can highlight them and, and do all sorts of cool analyses, toggle between linear and semi-logarithmic. Uh, Scott Bourne and Stu Harder stood up this page uh, in January, and it now has uh, 2.7 thousand members. Uh, these guys are not majority behavior analysts. They're epidemiologists, physicians, uh, politicians who are members of this. So it's amazing how these folks have really uh, expanded the reach of our science. So here are some solutions real quick. Let's, let's stop elevating ABA at the expense of other sciences. Remember that if something works, it has to be operating by behavioral principles, otherwise it wouldn't be effective. So instead of downing other people's uh, you know, mentalistic treatments, let's just translate them into our language if they work. Because again, if they work, they must be operating by our science, right? Let's disseminate. Your social media, subtle dissemination. This is in your job title and role. If your job is as a psychologist, change your title to behavior analyst, as long as it's not going to tick off your boss. Um, when you're doing professional speaking and writing, expound that you're a behavior analyst. Uh, publish in non-ADA journals. I can't emphasize this enough. Um, sponsor or seek grant funding for more practical studies that are in diverse areas. Provide more training internationally. Uh, again, connect with the Center for Deployment Psychology. If you're looking for more training, uh, Deployment psychology, I've shared that with you. Um, this is a training I'm actually doing in about two weeks. You can get six CEs, thanks to Megan Miller and the Do Better Movement for providing those. Those CEs will be free for BCBAs, um, but we're also offering CEs for other specialties. And with that, I say thank you so much. Appreciate your participation and attentiveness. Uh, you'll get the slides after, and please don't be a stranger. There's my email address. Reach out. All right, Kent, that was every bit as good as what I expected, and that was, uh, uh, I have a few questions myself when we get to that point. Our uh, uh, Vanessa is, is starting to come on here, and actually, like I said before, uh, Vanessa reached out to me after I had uh, was part of a, a, a session at uh, ABAI, virtual ABAI, and she helped uh, volunteered to come on board and brought a lot of information, um, not just uh, what she'll present to you today, but also just to uh, just to get this uh, this webinar going. Uh, she's spoken on juvenile justice. I was with her in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, last year at the international uh, convention, and it was just we had only three people there to talk about anything related to criminology and criminal justice and we were all crammed in the in the same room and I think at, at eight or nine in the morning 
So we, we are, uh, but that was very refreshing to hear that she had a talk about uh, juvenile justice, and she's going to talk about that with you here tonight. Are you ready now, Vanessa? I am ready. Okay, then I'll leave, and uh, you will continue. This is uh, Vanessa. Hi, everyone. So um, I'm going to be talking about the application of applied behavior analysis to the juvenile justice population. Um, this is near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm not necessarily going to read through these, but we're going to look at the uh, research on treatment with the juvenile justice population, so what is currently being done um, and what approach to treatment approaches are used to address this population, um, what research is actually behavior analytic in nature, um, and then how ABA can contribute to the juvenile justice population. So we first start with defining juvenile delinquency, and there are often numerous different ways sorry, that um, juvenile delinquency is defined. However, one of the main things that, or one of the common things is that it's some type of violation of the law that's committed by a juvenile. Um, so this violation, basically, it's kind of like a very vague definition, but it's because they're under the age of 18 and that's what falls under delinquency. Um, there are some definitions that actually include um, any type of contact with the, uh, the juvenile justice system. So if you have that initial contact, um, up to and including sentencing. Um, this is not always the case. Um, some just include arrest rates and arrest trends, um, and that depends on um, the state. The state kind of defines it the way they see fit. We as behavior analysts need to consider actually defining juvenile offending behavior, so not necessarily worry about what the definition of juvenile delinquency is or how to define that, but instead take a look at what behaviors um, may fall under juvenile offending. And these are things like taking things without permission. So that might be either burglary, robbery, it can be armed, unarmed, um, and what that looks like. Physical aggression towards others can fall under assault, uh, murder, manslaughter. Um, so all of those things can kind of fall in that domain. Um, selling illegal substances, selling stolen goods, destroying someone else's property, um, and then there's also setting fire, so arson. Um, and these are just some of the behaviors. These are the more overt behaviors that tend to get exposed. Um, physical aggression, not as much, much um, and taking things may go under the radar as well. But these are some of the behaviors that we look at. There are also status offenses that come into play, right? So not going to school. Um, or skipping school may fall as a status offense, and you can be arrested as a juvenile and placed in a detention center for, for repeated occurrences. Um, not completing your homework. There was just a story um, recently about a, a young girl who didn't do her online homework, and they placed her in detention. Um, so these are things that are not necessarily, if you were an adult, they would not be against the law, but because you're a minor or under the age of 18, they classify as breaking um, some type of law. So when looking at the rates of juvenile offending, the rates are, have been decreasing over the past year. Um, I mean, last, I think when I did this presentation, the rates were, or in 2017, were about 600,000. Now they've dropped down to 553,000. Um, 
and that's just in the United States. So these are just arrests. In, in the United States, 553,000 people were arrested in 2018. Um, and this doesn't account for any uh, under, you know, unreported incidents, um, anything that was not observed. So this rate actually may be even higher. Um, on any given year, there is uh, 130 juveniles that may be detained in um, about a year. Um, in detention, there could be 70,000 people in one day, and just in one detention center, or you know, in detention centers across the United States. And in 2016, uh, juveniles that were under 17 made up 0.5% of the inmates held in local jails. So that means that there were 37,000 youth that were actually detained in adult facilities um, during that year, and this that is common practice. Um, that number kind of remains around the same. So when looking at how typically juvenile delinquency is approached, um, the main approach, and these, these things are still up and going, these, this is the current approach to any type of crime, whether you're a juvenile or adult, um, there's some type of detention or incarceration. So half of all residential placements still use um, some form of isolation still in these settings. So they're using mechanical restraints, such as handcuffs, leg cuffs, waistbands, leather straps, um, and that's how they manage problem behaviors or behaviors that they don't want to see. Um, there is, there has been a de uh, decrease in closing these facilities. I saw that comment pop up. Um, one of the issues is they may end up being placed in an adult facility instead. Um, I know we, in Pennsylvania, they don't call them detention centers anymore. They're called youth centers, um, or they may have rehabilitation centers, but it's still kind of, it's the same setting. It's, it's the same type of, you know, they're not home and they're restricted. Um, we'll also see probation and that's common. And then fines and sanctions, um, that's a big one. But one of the issues is that fines and sanctions are normally not paid by these youth. It's normally their parents or their caregivers that are responsible for paying these um, fines and how does that relate to the youth, right? What, what consequence are we actually putting in place if it's a family or a caregiver that's the one that's really um, taking responsibility for that? Um, some of the problems with historic, these historical approaches is that um, research suggests that there's little impact on reducing juvenile offending behavior. So while it does appear the rates are um, decreasing, there's actually arguments that while the rates are decreasing in juvenile defending, what we see is that the costs are increasing. So there's something that's off or something that's missing because the cost of, of running these detention centers, with, even with the decreases and, and, and people in jail, and that's for adults as well, the costs are extremely high. Um, another issue is that there's negative effects. So um, there's a lot of mental health issues that come as part of the, you know, part of the equation, um, or there were already mental health issues that were already being addressed. Um, suicidal behavior, there's actually research that suggests that youth in detention centers are more likely to commit suicide or have um, die in these facilities, and suicide was the top rate um, than the general public. Um, there's also issues with, there's a reduction in their physical health, there's limitations in education. Um, they don't have access to uh, appropriate peer groups, so you're placing them in, in a setting with peers that maybe if you're in there for, you know, skipping schools, you can be in 
the same facility with someone who has engaged in very extreme behaviors or engaged in more aggressive behaviors and um, the peer group is very important, especially depending on the age. Um, incarceration actually predicts later crime, alcohol and drug use, um, and receipt of state funding such as welfare later in adulthood. Um, and instead of rehabilitating adults, what we really do is put them in a constant state of recidivism and contact with law enforcement. Um, so going to jail at a younger age actually increases your likelihood of a lifelong, um, oh, yes, Joe, you're, in, you're all throughout here somewhere. Um, it actually um, increases um, the later likelihood of their uh, crime, their um, continued and these behaviors. Um, and one of the other problems is that there's often an imposition of adult-like standards to developing adolescents. And this doesn't take into consideration um, their, if they have a development of disability or intellectual disability. If you look at the rates of people in, in detention centers with ASD um, and they're not getting any, any treatment for these, you know, these diagnoses, it's actually quite um, sad and disturbing. And yes, that is true, uh, Ryan. So look at the cost. So it is very expensive to detain a youth in any facility. So just reliance on these methods results in almost eight to $21 billion a year. And this is 2011. So if we really think about this, this is definitely um, much higher. Um, it costs about $400 per day per juvenile um, for seats. And this is ongoing. Um, results that research actually suggests that if you can save a high-risk adolescent from a life full of crime, you can actually save 2.6 million to 5.3 million for that youth, for that one youth, um, and being detained, court cases, lawyer fees, all of those things that come up. So now we're going to switch gears. We kind of have the background and talk about what the research is right now with the juvenile justice population. And one of the most um, common approaches is multi-systemic therapy. Um, we see this a lot. Like if you look at the research, this is one of the highest um, presented or published approaches. Um, it's an intensive family-based uh, treatment, and it's based on the social ecological system uh, theory. And the main goal is really to provide um, some type of parent training as well as training for youth. And they typically try to address um, at-risk youth or risk factors that we'll kind of discuss a little bit too. Um, they have found that this approach has been demonstrated effective in reducing delinquent behavior, future arrest rates, time incarcerated, and recidivism rates. Um, one of the limitations is that when you look at the research, it's kind of that they take the research and they always compare it to treatment as usual. So one, we don't know what treatment as usual necessarily is for each youth. It could be different for each one. Um, and some of the issues is that they're not necessarily comparing them to similar approaches. Um, another limitation is when you look at the treatment package and when you look at the research, it's very difficult to find out what actually was done. So it's like almost missing that technological piece that you know, we in the field of ABA are always looking for, it doesn't necessarily break down the steps on what they're actually doing to manage um, or to provide training or treatment to these youth. Next, you'll see a, a lot of cognitive behavior interventions. Um, that is another one 
is highly researched and highly um, discussed. And this is, they are treatment packages that focus on different therapeutic components. So they might work on addressing self-control, problem solving, social skills, values, and empathy, um, and all these different things. Um, they've found increases in social skills and self-esteem for some, some of the youth. Um, they found reductions in problem behaviors and improvement in planning parent skills, parenting skills in regards to supervision. Um, I know there was one program that added an aftercare component, which was like a three-month residential, um, like a three-month program after they were discharged, and that um, was able to maintain. Um, and then we see um, different, re you know, different reductions. Um, Another approach um, that has been used that could be considered a cognitive behavior intervention or a cognitive behavior um, therapy-based approach is mode deactivation therapy. And that looks at um, a theory that the network of cognitive, affective, and motivational and behavioral components that create different personalities, which are these modes. Um, it's it has been implemented to reduce recidivism. And these modes are consistent of various beliefs that contain memories or experience that produces these memories, which then form perspectives. So research has demonstrated that in a study, which actually was by um, Dr. Cotilli, um, that the youth that participated did not engage in, um, they did not reoffend during program stage. Um, and their recidivism rate was only at about 7% for everyone involved. Um, one sad thing is though, this study has not been replicated currently. The next approach, um, and this is kind of the last one that we'll talk about that's not behavior analytic in nature, is family function therapy. So this is a big one that comes up. I think this one was the most searched um, when doing uh, a lit review. And this looks at the reduction of behavioral problems, felony, um, violent behaviors, violent crimes, by approaching it as um, more of a, a family approach. So they're looking at the family, because um, one of the risk factors associated with juvenile delinquency relates to families' involvement and things of like that, and trying to fill the space between. That's what they say. Um, I'm not sure what that space between is, but that is kind of the approach. Um, and with this, what they found is that there have been um, reductions in behavioral behavioral problems and also had maintenance at five year follow up during some of these um, positive impact on siblings. Um, there have been there was a study that actually looked to evaluate um, treatment integrity and as we know, the higher the treatment integrity, the better the outcome for these um, youth. And then there's parenting with love and limits. Um, this is a family-focused treatment approach for at-risk youth and delinquent as well, and it's based on the structural family therapy. It's been replicated in 13 states, so this is one of those um, approaches that is kind of statewide used. Um, it's kind of in the, this is the way they try to approach um, delinquency in some states. Um, it was initially developed as a diversion program to prevent delinquents, but now they've actually used it with individuals on probation. And it's also been implemented as a reentry model, like as part of a public pilot study. So through this reentry model, youth are still incarcerated. However, they have they go to the program and have opportunities within the community as well. Um, one downside 
to all of these approaches, and, and I guess the research with these approaches, the current approaches is they use group studies, so we don't see individual effects. Um, it's not necessarily based on the individuals, the functions of their behaviors, their um, learning history, their abilities. It's kind of based on just addressing certain issues or common issues that have, they have found effective with multiple use. Um, so that it doesn't look at, most of these approaches don't look at the individual themselves. But then we'll move on to the behavior analytic approaches. Um, so obviously the only ones that have come up in the research so far are token reinforcement, um, contingency contracting, self-management, and the teaching family model. Um, I do want to note that most of the research is from 1960s to 1970s. Um, there was one study that was published in 2013 um, on contingency contracting, and then, or in, I'm sorry, on self I can't remember which one it was, but we're going to talk about it. I think it was contingency contracting. Um, but then there's one other one that actually was published this year in 2020. Um, with token reinforcement, uh, they found reductions in problem behaviors in detention centers, schools, teaching family homes. Um, token reinforcement was really big. They um, used a lot, used a lot in um, the teaching family homes. Um, I had the experience of doing a practicum at a detention center. They didn't have a token reinforcement system per se, but they used the level system, and the participant, the youth, were able to earn points and get access to different. They would move through different levels based on how many points they had. Um, one of the problems was how these sometimes these programs get implemented. Staff have favorites. Some kids, you know, some kids would get points taken away for no reason. Some would get points added when they didn't deserve it. So it kind of boils down to some issues and oversight. Um, but with token reinforcement, they've also found increases in um, adaptive behavior, such as cleanliness, um, study behavior completion of homework, they were effective, it's effective in treating pre-delinquent youth as well as those that are incarcerated or have been incarcerated. Um, and it's also been implemented in conjunction with response costs, which has resulted in um, decreases in, in problem behaviors based on magnitude of the law. So the more laws, um, the greater the response or the outcome. Um, the next one are contingency contracts. So there's that list of some type of desired behavior reward and bonuses were added as well. Um, they would include penalties um, and it would have special conditions. So if you were in confinement for some reason, um, that might limit the contract. So you might not be able to earn during that period of time. Um, what they found is that it, in conjunction with communication skills and training and uh, videotape feedback, there is huge success. Um, there's been re reductions in verbal abusiveness, uh, recidivism rate, reduction in sibling offender behavior as well. And when training staff, they actually saw training staff to implement these contingency contracts, um, staff had increases in negotiation and contract writing skills in these settings. Um, then we have self-management. So with self-management, um, these youth are taught to engage in some type of behavior or some type of self-monitoring. And one research article, there were only two actually on self-management in this type of setting. Um, and one uh, resulted in the youth learning um, the 
learning basic behavioral principles and improvement and improvement in the chosen target behavior. So they were allowed to choose which target behaviors that they wanted to work on, um, and there were significant improvements for those youth. Um, and, and then um, this, I'll answer. We'll do the questions at the end. I'm sorry because they pop up so small. I can't really see them fast enough. Um, with disorderliness, this was actually a very interesting study out of Africa, and they evaluated disorderliness. So what they looked for, um, or what they defined disorderliness was as engagement in disruptive behavior, specifically disturbances in peace or public ordinance, vandalism, fighting, and untidiness. Um, and the reason why they chose these behaviors is because they typically occur at home, however, they have this huge social context. And interestingly, they actually compared self-management to token reinforcement, and they found that self-management was more effective in reducing disorderliness when compared. So the last approach that is still up and going today um, at Father Flanagan's program, Boys Town, um, out in Nebraska, is the teaching family model. Um, this is the only one that is still uh, currently up and running. Um, they don't put out as much research, but if you go on to their site um, on Boystown, they have a bunch of outcomes and information. Um, and it's basically, um, it's based on behavior analysis and it's implemented typically with at-risk youth as a preventative measure, so there are youth that may be in foster care that might end up in these programs, um, different types of people end up in these programs, and there's some, there has also been successful with youth that have been incarcerated or, you know, in the juvenile justice system already. Um, they, their goals are kind of similar to our dimensions of ABA, so they talk about, you know, they want their anything delivered, their treatment delivered has to be humane, and the interventions are implemented on and delivered based on respect and acceptance, and they want that buy-in from the youth that are in their program. Um, their interventions have to be effective, so there needs to be progress made, and that progress has to be, um, you know, up to the standards of the stakeholders. So the stakeholders need to be satisfied with the progress that these youth are made, making. Um, it's individualized, so each youth has their own individualized approach to addressing whatever their their referral reason was. Um, cost efficient, so they're trying to keep it as affordable and practical, um, and then replicable and integrated. So they want these things to continue. They want to affect teach skills and teach things that are easy to replicate and that continue on. And they also want to make sure that everything that's implemented is implemented with integrity, and we're making sure we're looking at all the facets. Um, typically, there's a group home type setting, and there's teaching parents that are in these homes. So there's a woman and a man, and they are the parents, and they're responsible for teaching the youth the skills that they need um, in implementing any programming. So it's family style. They eat dinner together. They do um, everything together. They go on event outings, and everything is um, very cohesive. Um, when looking at the research, there were actually 792 replications. Um, and this has been in place since the 60s. It started with Achievement Place for Boys, and then now it's still going on. Um, research in Boys Town has demonstrated that the youth that are at purpose um, are more likely to be employed, uh, more likely to provide charitable services and avoid arrest, and then there's a decrease in the domestic violence incidents when compared to treatment as usual. So um, not, once again, 
we don't know what that treatment as usual is, but moving forward. Um, one of the biggest issues um, with the behavior analytic research is that it is limited. Um, most of the research we're all addresses reducing problem behaviors in detention centers, group homes, these settings, and, and we don't necessarily look at how we can generalize to the community setting. Um, the other issue is, is there's a lack of replication. So now is that we're not necessarily doing the research in this area anymore at all. So the majority is from there. Sorry, the audio's breaking up. And okay. the setting of these, these treatments are typically in the detention center or group home. So we're facing these, it's, it's a post, you know, we're not addressing it uh, proactively. We're more of a reactive situation. Um, I know in the detention centers, when the, the, the token system, the level systems are in place, they're not training parents how to manage this level system when the youth goes home. Um, normally they just, and, and, and a lot of times they don't even have exposure that often. What happens is they can be in a detention center from anywhere from a week to a couple days. Um, so uh, in some a month, so they're constantly cycling in these centers, so they're not even being really exposed to these uh, treat treatments and these approaches on an ongoing basis. Um, so what can we do? Well, like how as a field can we address um, the juvenile ju justice population? So Morris, um, 1980, he actually talked about that application and. Uh, of ABA to the criminal justice field, and we can surmise that juvenile justice and criminal justice are very similar um, in their some of their way the way they handle problem behaviors and manage issues. Um, and he talked about, however, while ABA can apply be applied to this population with ease, there are different problems. Like there's, there's a special set of problems and concerns that is with this population that you won't see in um, an ASD population. You won't see it in um, just normal parenting. Um, it's just there's a special set of, you know, individualized things. So he talks about um, when addressing the applied approach, well, one thing that we need to remember is juvenile delinquency is a socially significant problem. Even though there tends to be, a, there appears to be a decrease in the Frequency of arrest, or you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a decrease in the actual juvenile offending behavior. It's socially significant for us to address the issue. Um, when looking at the behavioral aspect, we have to get away from defining juvenile delinquency and more and look more at defining offending behavior. So we need to think about what is that behavior looks like for the individual and not lump sum them with every other behavior. And it needs to be defined so that people that are intervening understand and know what they are doing. Um, one problem is with juvenile delinquency or juvenile offending behavior is it is hard to directly measure. There are times where you don't know, you can't, these crimes are happening or these problems or problem behaviors are happening out of the sight of the public. We don't know that they even occurred. So that's one of the issues. Um, and a lot of behaviors or a lot of juvenile offending behaviors or violations of the law go unnoticed. I mean, how many times do we all speed through down the highway and we get away with it because there's nothing in place to continue to monitor it. Um, but we still can address related behaviors. So 
maybe we should look at teaching rule governed behavior or self-management skills to address issues of self-control that might result in different problems or addressing vocational skills and social skills issues that are related to juvenile offending behavior and those are more likely to be to be observed and you more likely to observe uh, measure them um, we want to look at the analytic part so one problem with this population which is kind of in line with um, the fact that we don't always observe every instance is that it's uh, difficult to address it and more dim it's more difficult to demonstrate a functional relationship and maintain manage confounding variables so with some type of juvenile defending behavior you cannot control as every aspect of confounding variables like you can in a, a, a center or in a, a, a research facility um, so you can't necessarily manage or address like you can't really always get that functional relationship and manage it completely um, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's out of our control um, especially when you're looking at what type of risk factors are involved and things of that nature um, but more is argued that as long as we're taking reliable data collection that we would have to use less robust robust research methods with this population and that would just have to be good enough um, when looking at technological piece we need clear and concrete descriptions of the procedures and that is one of the hugest issues in the field you can't replicate a lot of these research studies because you don't know what's actually happening you can't replicate these research studies in your um, in a home with the youth because you don't have access to what's actually being done and we need to make sure that when we are doing this research and when we are talking about what we're doing that we're using very clear and concrete and we're explaining what's going on in detail um, we also want to look at effectiveness so Warren argued that it isn't just whether the procedures implemented work or were effective but whether they were implemented consistently um, what the, the implementation was reproducible and there was a large enough effect that it was socially significant um, they did talk about he talked about measuring socially significant you know social significance and social validity um, and including stakeholders but it should we should be very careful in this aspect as well because when you're obtaining you know opinions of lawmakers thank you um, lawmakers and different populations you need to be careful and what they might say um, and then looking at generality that's another issue we don't generalize these procedures they're in the detention center we do it you know consistently they're in this teaching family home we do it consistently but we're not always generalizing to the family or to where they're going to go and we lose out on maintenance because the skills you know they're back in their normal you know their typical environment and they're going to sometimes revert back to those behaviors that were reinforced um, so dramatically before and regardless the principles remain the same we can look at juvenile offending behavior regardless you know the same way we look at any type of behavior um, I'm going to move a little bit quickly through here um, Morris talked about uh, assumptions of ABA as applied to this population he argued that good application with good research um, that we need to really think about social validity and not just from the people who are running these prisons or judges and lawmakers we need to look at it from the environment like the society's perspective the parents the local community and the schools um, and then using a systems or ecological framework which I'll try to get to very quickly 
Um, he talks about breaking down the interventions into different categories. Um, so they're either procedural, pro programmatic, uh, the social context address. And this is in that when you look at the research, a lot of things are not less necessarily, they don't always address the social context, and that might be where we're missing out. Um, a lot of times they're worried about decreasing some type of problem behavior in the detention center and not necessarily outside of it. Um, there's no, you know, we're not always working on trying to address the skills or whatever the skill deficits are. So it kind of needs to be across all of these. And we need to switch from a reactive module to a preventative module. Um, why do we need to do this? Well, right now in the current, the current approaches, there's a lack of individualization. So we're not con considering the individual at all. Um, we have a failure to generalize, so this, the treatments and the approaches are not generalizing to the community, so what happens is we're just back at that recidivism and crime continues to occur and it's, the cycle just continues. And there's a lack of maintenance, so the skills that may be taught in the detention center do not maintain because no one's reinforcing them when they get back into their mm -hmm. typical environment. Their parents aren't reinforcing it, their peers aren't reinforcing it, it's not being reinforced in school. Um, so what can we do? We can look at individualization. That's what we do. We know how to look at the individual, figure out what their antecedents are and how to address their antecedents, um, figure out what the behavior looks like and why they're engaging in the behavior because we kind of do need a function-based approach. Everyone's not engaging in the same behavior for the same reason. And if you use a blanket approach, you may be missing huge pieces. Um, one huge thing is addressing the risk factor. There are known risk factors associated with juvenile delinquency um, related to the family, the individual, and the community. Um, there are also different risk factors that are um, static, where these are things that can, no one can change, um, and risk factors that are related to um, their the antecedents, so we're addressing like certain antecedents that may happen or setting events and consequences as well. Um, one thing we can do is teach replacement behaviors to non-compliance, aggression, um, different behaviors that come up. Um, teach vocational skills and social skills. A lot of times youth are engaging in uh, crimes to gain access to certain things. So if they had the social skills and the vocational skills to access them differently, um, maybe there would be a change. Um, parent behavior training. Um, one of the biggest issues um, with juvenile delinquency, you know, one of the biggest risk factors is related to parents and their involvement, their supervision of their youth. Um, so providing parent training on how to manage their children better and how to supervise their children and, and, and what are the risk factors, what do they need to know. And then providing proactive treatment for siblings. So if we know um, one of the older youth has been to jail, we need to provide proactive treatment for siblings and that should be automatic. It shouldn't be a situation where now they're in the system and now we're providing treatment. If we identify that this family there's other children in the home, we need to address, you know, provide that treatment in the home beforehand. Um, building on previous research, there is a lot of research out there. Um, collaboration with schools, the school to prison pipeline is real. We need to collaborate with schools on how we can decrease that and how we can address that. Um, behavior coaching and providing uh, modifying environmental variables to address um, what you can. Some of them are going to be out of your control, but if you can control supervision and you know lack of supervision is a variable that results in um, problems, juvenile offending, make sure we address this and implement different things. Um, so that is it for me.
guys will get all these references when it goes out. This has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.